A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Philippa Nuttall, Environment and Sustainability Editor in Brussels. It's Wednesday, the 9th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. U.S. President Joe Biden announced a ban on Russian oil and gas imports. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. But will Europe follow suit, and will the world change its energy consumption and production? Meanwhile, in Ukraine, fighting continues between Ukrainian and Russian forces. Voice. Here is the evening, Kiev. We are all on the ground. We are all at war. We all contribute to our victory, which will definitely be achieved. And we take a listener question on NATO and no-fly zones. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Before we get into it, yes, it is Wednesday. We want to give you as up-to-date information as we can. So forgive, you know, the slight discrepancy between script and reality. We have sort of danced around the subject of energy sanctions and Russian oil and gas in recent episodes. We're delighted to have our energy editor, Philippa, on the podcast with us this week to to really delve into the subject. So Philippa, thank you for, for being here. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Could you sort of, before we really get into it, just give us the state of play Obviously, we heard at the top there that that President Biden has announced um, a ban on Russian oil and gas imports. Where does the world stand, if you like, the so-called Western world, on Russian oil and gas right now? Thanks, Emily. Yeah, so the the US and the UK both came out with with bans yesterday. So the US came out with a ban on imports of of Russian oil, and the UK said it would uh, impose a, a ban by the end of the year. Um, I think in the in the European Union, the situation is different because of of different energy mixes within different member states. So yesterday, the European Commission came out with what it called its Repower Europe package, which aims to get the EU off Russian gas by twenty thirty at the latest and also aims to reduce imports of of Russian fossil fuels by two-thirds by the end of this year. But as I said before, it's a very mixed picture within Europe, given that some countries import relatively little Russian oil and gas, and other countries such as Germany and, and Italy import considerable amounts. And therefore, whether the EU will actually um, impose a, an outright ban, as the US has done, I think remains to be seen. Forgive me if this is sort of glib, but we're talking about 2030 There's, or, or even the end of the year, you know, the war is, is going on 
now? Is there is there a sense that 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 this is sort of too little, too late? I think it's quite complicated. I mean, to put it into perspective, so the the US uh, imports about seven to eight percent of its oil imports are from Russia. In Germany, thirty percent of its imports are from Russia. A similar situation: almost half of of Germany's gas imports are from Russia, compared to, for example, six percent in the UK. So, so certain countries, um, Italy as well, for example, imports nearly all of its gas, and about forty percent of it comes from Russia. So, so these countries have a massive dependency on Russian oil and gas. And, and clearly, it probably is quite difficult for them to, to overnight say they're not going to import it anymore. I mean, I think the EU is working hard to, to try and reduce dependence on Russia. There's an EU summit in Versailles, France tomorrow um, under the French presidency of the EU and energy is on the table. But the wording in the in the draft agreement at the moment is quite weak. It, it's kind of, it will be discussed, it will be on the table, but there doesn't seem to be any sense at this time that the, the all countries in the EU are really ready to step up and just switch off the oil and gas um, immediately. In terms of what that dependency actually entails, I suppose it's one thing to say, you know, Germany imports almost half of its foreign gas from from Russia. But what does that actually mean in terms of its policy, in terms of its ability to, I mean, literally keep the lights on? Theoretically, if, if Germany decided to completely cut off its imports of Russian gas tomorrow, or if Russia turned off the taps, what would happen? Are there a can we organise alternatives? Would it just mean, I mean, literally the lights going out? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I'm not sure that anybody has the the, the full answer to this. I mean, Olaf Scholz, the, the German Chancellor, said on Monday that he he wouldn't be implementing a ban on oil imports at the moment because it would literally mean pain for, for consumers and for industry. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that the lights would go off, but I think there is a big fear that prices would spike even further. And obviously, consumers and industry across Europe and the UK is experiencing extremely high energy prices prices at the moment. So I think the real fear is that this this price spike gets even worse. Research tends to show that, I mean, we're coming to the end of, of winter in Europe and research suggests that we could manage at the moment. Franz Timmermans said yesterday it will be bloody hard. And I think that's probably the right answer, but we could manage through. But I think also there's a bigger question of then what happens next winter if having less dependence on Russian imports becomes a general state of affairs rather than just a, an immediate reaction to what's happening at the moment. And I think there's also a wider question then of a certain amount of the EU strategy yesterday was, was replacing, finding alternative sources for energy. A lot of these regimes are not necessarily happy places or necessarily that much better. I mean, the US, for example, is talking to you know Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, even Iran in terms of, of where it could import oil from. So I think what lots of commentators are pushing for is, is that there's a wider question around that we reduce dependency on, on gas and oil per se through energy efficiency, through greater use of renewables, rather than necessarily jumping sort of away from Russia and, and towards other regimes. And I want to get into that in a bit. But first, you know, what have you made of these reports of negotiations or, or talks with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, with Venezuela, with Iran? As the energy editor and somebody who follows this closely, could you say a bit more about your impressions of this sort of scramble to find more oil from, from somewhere? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to, to know exactly what's happening at the moment. One energy expert I was speaking to yesterday said to me, you know, these regimes may not be the, the most humanitarian or environmentally friendly regimes in the world, but they're, they're perhaps not threatening world peace, which, which could be the case with Russia at the moment. So, you know, perhaps in terms of keeping the lights on, we do need to look for alternatives in the short term. I think the bigger question is around the imports of liquefied natural gas. So a lot of our energy in Europe comes in at the moment, gas in particular via pipelines. We're increasingly bringing LNG in via ships from from countries such as Qatar. And there's a concern, I think, from environmentalists, from people working closely on, on climate change, that we don't suddenly switch to alternative sources of fossil fuels that don't enable us to tackle the climate crisis at the same time as we're also dealing with an energy security crisis. And if we're talking about Europe in particular, Europe's dependence on Russian gas, the imports of Russian gas that the EU makes have actually risen quite significantly um, since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, which we spoke about on an episode of this podcast before the second invasion of Ukraine. Why is that, do you think? Why was the EU unable to see that significant dependence on energy from a geopolitical rival could be a vulnerability to be exploited? I think part of it is that gas has been pushed very strongly, perhaps unsurprisingly, by the the gas industry and and various fossil fuel companies as a a transition fuel, as as a bridge fuel between highly polluting fossil fuels such as coal um, and gas produces, uh, at least when it's burnt, fewer greenhouse gas emissions. And obviously the focus or a certain focus has been on, on climate action and reducing emissions in line with the Paris Agreement within the EU. And so I think there has been this kind of let's go for gas because it's sort of the the least of all evils in a way. And it's been very, very much pushed by that. And if you look at the UK at the moment, lots of people within the the Conservative Party who pushed a dependence on gas, uh, even if it's not Russian gas, but on on, on gas per se, and even if the gas is coming from the UK, it's sold on the global market. So so the UK gas is still subject to these price fluctuations um, and now turning around and saying, you know, we actually need, you know, more energy security. And I think at the time gas was seen as giving that even if it came from Russia and that obviously now has been proven to be wrong. In a, in a grim sort of twist of fate, you know, this is all happening as we have this IPCC report that came out and with quite quite dire warnings about climate change and uh, and where we're headed. Do you think that this leads people to sort of double down on on drilling? Republicans here in the United States are criticizing Biden for not drilling in every available place. Do we double down on trying to find oil and gas from elsewhere? Or do you think that this will be taken as an opportunity to, as you suggested earlier, turn toward renewables? I think at the moment, it is an open question. The EU repower package yesterday was very clear that we we need to increase energy efficiency. We need to waste less energy, whether that be through, for example, insulating our homes. Uh, we need to move from gas central heating to, to heat pumps. We need to have more wind, more solar. But the one thing that was really missing was a a key target to actually reduce overall gas dependency in Europe. We can see in the UK at the moment, there are lots of um, or a certain number of conservative MPs and also uh, Nigel Farage, who who helped to lead the, the Brexit campaign, who are using this moment to say, as in various parts of the US, you know, we need to drill, we need to try and 
get shale gas out. We need to frack. We need to find local solutions, even if the science doesn't back up any of this and shows actually to the contrary that these solutions wouldn't solve either the, the climate crisis or the energy security crisis. And I think what we really need to see now from from leaders is a, a solutions that tackle the, the the triple whammy of of energy security, energy poverty, and and the climate crisis. Because as you say, the IPCC report was very clear in terms of the the trail of, of death and destruction that climate change is creating. We only need to look at what's happening in Australia in terms of the terrible floods that they're experiencing this week to see that we can't just turn our backs on on climate change in the sort of desperate grasp to to keep the lights on and and in the long term, even in the medium term, solutions that we put in place should address all three problems and not simply look at at energy security. And may I ask how you think this will influence our understanding of of nuclear energy and nuclear power? Because on the one hand, you have people who are saying, well, you know, this this is going to make us rethink what Angela Merkel's legacy was and Germany should have never turned away from nuclear power. On the other hand, there's all this fear over what will happen uh, vis-a-vis the various nuclear plants in, in Ukraine with fighting around around them. Do, I mean, do you think this this will make people more or less obviously a nuclear <laughs> nuclear energy in Germany and Chernobyl are not the same thing. I don't mean to imply they are, but but you know, sort of in our popular conception, what do you think this this will do for for our understanding of of nuclear power? I think in terms of nuclear power what what we're seeing is that the nuclear power stations in a in an unstable world um are um, a potential threat or could be used for incorrect purposes and and cause a lot of fear and a lot of worry. I think the other thing that needs to happen need to look at on the back of that is also the price of of nuclear power so nuclear power is already very expensive way more expensive than than solar or wind for example and i imagine that fears around nuclear as you, as you've just outlined could also increase the the cost of building a, a nuclear power station i mean if we look at Hinkley Point, for example, in the UK is already over budget and it's taking more time to build there than it was initially estimated. This is a general thing that happens with nuclear. And I think what's happening at the moment will only push prices up even further. And therefore, it may not even be a public opinion issue, but also a market issue that nuclear just literally becomes too expensive. Um, It also takes a long time to build. And if we're talking about getting off Russian gas and gas per se even, then, you know, nuclear takes 10 years or more to to have a nuclear power station up and running. We can have solar panels up much, much quicker than that. And even wind, um, there's lots of discussion as well about making it easier to, to, to build wind power. And if that would be the case, it would be much quicker to get wind power and cheaper to, to have wind farms up and running. And then obviously the main way of, of reducing bills in general is to be much more energy efficient. And those solutions combined would seem to make much more economic sense than the building massive nuclear powers, even without the the potential threats as we see at the moment. I have one last question for you for this part of the podcast, which is, I think that there is a sense that people have that renewable energy is somehow soft, right? Like there's something hippie-ish about it. We're talking about how our conception might change toward nuclear power. Do you think that renewable energy might be looked at as a boon to national security in a way it hasn't been in the past? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that perception perhaps still exists in 
in certain quarters. But if we look in the UK, for example, offshore wind is a massive industry in the UK now. And, and while there are certain politicians who, who are using this crisis as a moment to suggest that the UK will be left without power, that people will have to go back to the dark ages, you know, renewables, offshore wind is a very strong, sturdy industry. And I think most people are highly aware of, of that now. And renewables is local in many cases. And so therefore, in terms of energy security, it should certainly be the moment where we start really seeing it as, as core to our energy systems. And I think also the, the wider question as well in all this is perhaps questions around the economy in general. I mean, the sanctions in general and the, and the war in Ukraine and, and what's happening in Russia is clearly going to put and is already putting massive strain on the on the global economy. And, and as we work through that, you know, the, the need to create jobs, to create new industries will be there. And creating, you know, I mean, in the UK, there's people coming for like an army of heat pump uh, engineers, to, you know, to go around and really make sure that people can change their gas boilers over to, to heat pumps, for example. And these are the kinds of industries that will create jobs and 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 keep the economy <laughs> moving forward, which, which would not be the case if we just go and build out great big nuclear power stations or or import our gas from, from other countries around the world. This part of the story of Russia's war in Ukraine is not going away. We will continue to follow it and cover it at The New Statesman. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Right now, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Thanks, Ito. Our question today comes to us via email from Alan. Listening to World Review and having heard the same argument elsewhere, I don't understand the argument that should NATO intervene militarily in Ukraine, then Putin will reply with nuclear weapons. Alan continues, the way I see it, this argument allows Putin to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, undermines the whole basis for NATO, and invalidates the very concept that uh, mutually assured destruction as a nuclear deterrent. If we say we cannot intervene in Ukraine because of the nuclear threat, then surely if Putin invaded a NATO member, the same argument applies. Then Alan asks, and Alan, I'm, I'm apologize for sort of abbreviating, but basically, if this argument applies to Ukraine, doesn't it also apply to to the Baltic states? And then Alan goes on, Putin is adopting the Nixonian, quote, madman, end quote, strategy, and NATO is falling for it hook, line, and sinker. So is there a flaw in my reasoning? I haven't heard anyone make this argument on any media. All I hear is that intervening is too dangerous because of Putin's nukes. Alan, thank you for the question. Ido, I will let you take the first the first stab at, at replying. There isn't really an argument that I've seen put forward for a no-fly zone, which doesn't boil down to we can't do nothing. And this question kind of comes at it from the same direction. What if two things that were different were the same thing? The Baltic states are in NATO and Ukraine is not in NATO. That's a qualitative difference. And it means that we, broadly speaking, members of the NATO alliance, the alliance itself, have a responsibility to the Baltic states in a way that we don't do Ukraine. Now, that's why Ukraine would dearly like to join NATO, or did perhaps before it was disillusioned with, with NATO, but that is the reality of the situation. There are treaty obligations to Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania that do not exist for Ukraine. And so saying, well, are we going to stand back and not do anything when when Putin attacks the Baltics? I mean, possibly, but it's not very useful to to say that it's it's the same situation as uh, as Ukraine because it's it's clearly not. And to my knowledge, there has never been a test of the NATO alliance such as the the question implies could happen to the Baltics and. I'm not at all discounting the possibility that in the end, some countries in the NATO alliance, if the Baltic states were attacked, would say it's not worth the cost, it's it's not worth the risk. You know, we shouldn't directly fight Russia. I'm not at all discounting that possibility, but it's quite important to sort of uphold the pretense, if you will, that that's what we'll do. Now, if push comes to shove, perhaps we won't, but it is important to say to say that we will so that hopefully we never have to. It's the principle of of, of deterrence and indeed of nuclear deterrence. Now, letting Putin supposedly, quote unquote, do anything he wants in Ukraine because of his nukes, even if there's a very small chance that a no-fly zone or that NATO taking further action in Ukraine could lead to nuclear war, that is still not a, a risk we should take lightly. Um, and if we are going to take action, we shouldn't dismiss that possibility with just, he'll continue doing whatever he wants because he has nukes. Like, that is the reality of a nuclear armed state, which is that 
Putin and, and that country has the possibility of almost literally ending human civilization, human life, all life on Earth. Even if there's a very small chance that escalation could lead to that, it shouldn't be dismissed. And and the question, I, th- I think you truncated this part, Emily, but it said, if we cannot intervene in Ukraine because of the nuclear threat, then truly if Putin invaded a NATO member state, the same argument applies. It does, it does apply, but it hasn't been tested yet. And until the point at which it's tested, we should exert extreme caution in taking courses of actions which could potentially lead to further escalation, potentially up to and in, including the use of nuclear weapons or a direct conflict between between nuclear powers. It's not to say that a no-fly zone would necessarily lead to nuclear war, but it is to say that a no-fly zone and NATO planes shooting down Russian planes or Russian planes shooting at NATO planes makes escalation in that direction much more likely. There also is a difference, I think we should say, between if, I mean, and maybe it's a a distinction, uh, you know, a a difference of degrees, but I think these these degrees do matter. There's a difference between NATO getting involved in a conflict to which it is not currently a combatant, right? Um, And Russia attacking a NATO member state and NATO honoring the terms of the alliance and defending itself. As Ido said, this is why Ukraine wanted to join NATO. It's also why there were concerns to such an extent about letting Ukraine into NATO um, that discussion and debate has dragged on for years and Ukraine was still not admitted. We should also say that, well, two things. One, even if a no-fly zone were enacted and we did not go to nuclear war and NATO got involved, one other argument for not letting Ukraine in in the first place is that if you fight a war on Russia's borders, you will probably lose. NATO is not as well positioned as I think some might think to to win the the fight in Ukraine. Number one. Number two, I have an interview up now on the newstatesman.com with Andrei Kozirev, who was the Russian foreign minister in 1990s. He made the case to me that no, Putin's bluffing and you need to call his bluff. I know that there are people who think that. I personally am not going to sit on this podcast and say, Yes, it's worth finding out whether or not he's bluffing about nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Now, he may decide, let me just test it and go into Poland and go into the Baltic states and see whether Biden is bluffing about that being the red line and NATO territory being the red line. And then I suppose we'll find out. But the the risk is just so great until, as Ido said, until we have to find out what, what will happen if Putin invades the Baltic states or Poland. Why would we try to find out? I'm just amazed at this. Like it's established now that this is this war is madness. It makes no sense from from Russia's own interest. It's going disastrously for Russia. It's leading to the total collapse of the Russian economy. It's 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 a disaster from Russia's own perspective. And so it was launching, it was a completely irrational act. We're accepting that Putin is a completely irrational actor. What he does makes makes no sense from, from his own perspective. Oh, but with regards to nuclear weapons, he'll, he's a rational actor and we can trust him. Why, why are we doing this? I don't understand. I do not want to test the proposition that Putin has, has launched this madness, this, this war of aggression, which is... With, which from his own perspective is is total lunacy, but knowing that he has access to the red button and, and just hoping that with regards to that he will he will he, he's a rational actor and he won't and he won't do it. I personally don't want to don't want to test that. The consequences of getting this wrong are way too high, so we should not try. Um, we should also say that that not that there is still more and Jeremy made this point this past Saturday on the podcast there is indeed still more that the that the world can do for Ukraine that it is not currently doing that is short of a no fly zone for example uh, well obviously taking in refugees and and refugee resettlement there's also 
further energy bans. And there's also, I think some people, and Alan, I'm not saying that you're doing this, but I do think that some people are confusing safe zones with no-fly zones, right? So you could, if if the UN were to work to establish a safe zone in the country, I mean, insofar as the UN still has credibility on this particular crisis, that is a genuinely non-aggressive measure that could potentially save lives. So there are still things that the world could be doing that they're not, that does not involve NATO shooting down Russian planes. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with Petro Kreko on Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's response to Russia's war in Ukraine and the upcoming Hungarian elections. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.